0: If you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, we're going to put the the text up on the screen. And just a reminder, if you're one of those folks who have yet to have a Bible, uh, in our bookstore in the back of campus, if you make your way over to the Commons, uh, we have Bibles that we'll give you. um, Maybe Bibles, plural, is a little bit strong. We'll give you a Bible, okay, um, so you're not hoarding them. Um, but we want you to have one. We want you to have one on your own so you can kind of mark it up and know it and get to know where, where God says what in it. So uh, that's our gift to you. Thanks for being here. Um, you have, if you're a first-time visitor, you've caught us kind of in the front end of a, an amazing study. Uh, the book of Romans is uh, the pinnacle of God's depiction of the gospel to sinners, I mean, it's mentioned everywhere, but I suppose if you were going to take a book with you, and you can only have one, you would take Paul's letter to the Romans because there's so much in it. And, and some of it you love, like the section we're in now about grace, the two and a half months where we spent in our sin was a little hard, right, uphill, um, week after week of, of discovery that you suck. That's the point of that passage. Um <laughs> And we're learning that, and some of us learn that on a weekly basis uh, to how deep that goes. Like we're really far worse than we thought. And so Paul has been making an argument, one, for the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves, and he did it by pulling away all of our excuses, all of our man-made offerings to God by saying we are far worse than we ever feared. Sin has tainted us and twisted us to such a degree we can't offer anything to God. In fact, we're not even interested in God. We don't perceive God. We don't want to obey God uh, the way he requires. And so so we have a need. That whole two and a half chapters of Romans uh, 1 through the beginning of 3 just kind of pulled away Every bit of our excuses. Now, if you've been through it and if you've read it, uh, if there wasn't chapter three on, there'd be some huge despair going on. Because all Paul is trying to say is that you can't. And not only that you can't, but you won't. Because we're really that broken. But it's all a setup. It's all a, set us, a setup to get us to Jesus. The wonderful story that redemption, I keep saying this, I told you last week, it still blows my mind every time I read it. Redemption or righteousness is available to sinners. I just can't comprehend how God could or would, knowing me, offer me holiness by faith in Christ. And yet that's exactly what's required. If if anybody's going to know God, if anybody's going to escape his wrath or his judgment, we need something we don't have. In fact, we perpetrate our own problems on a daily basis. And so something about God's righteousness applied has to super- Exceed all these other things. It has to superabound in our lives. And that's kind of where we're at in this passage of Scripture. Chapter 3 introduced to us the solution to our problem of sin of, that we found in the first two chapters, this righteousness by faith through Christ, right, that he is, he is uh, the redeemer to us. Paul's now going to spend some time uh, unplugging all of the oppositions to that wonderful story because after all, what's at stake here is salvation, okay? We either throw the Bible away if there is something else that is provided for man's righteousness. If we can work for it, if we find the excuse in the cosmos, somebody, someone in history who is able to perform to such a degree that God would be happy with their performance, then the gospel falls apart. We got nothing left, and so we should go do something else with our Sundays and worship somebody else. But I'm gonna suggest to you that what Paul is doing here is is presenting to us either one, an argument people have presented to him or he's imposing that this argument will be presented and he starts with Abraham. Now, uh, most of us have heard of Abraham. I would suggest to you that he's probably the most um, revered man in human history. Now, you might struggle with that thinking that, well, Jesus, isn't Jesus the most revered? Jesus is probably the most famous, clearly, and we revere him. But Jesus declares himself as God and the judge, and that's an offense, so many people don't revere Jesus. They know about him. He's certainly famous, but he's not revered. Abraham, on the other hand, the entire Jewish nation draws its lineage to Abraham. That's millions of Jews. One billion followers of Islam connect their religion to Abraham. 1.5 1.5 billion Christians connect their faith to Abraham. There's three some billion people who are saying Abraham's pretty special in our story, right? So if there's a, if there's a historical character that has clout and weight, it'd be Abraham, okay? And so Paul brings that up either um, as a response to someone saying, wait a minute, Paul, you're talking about grace alone apart from any works. What about Abe? Maybe someone did that. Or he's probably assuming that's where they're going to go. Because there's an understanding, at least in the Jewish culture, that Abraham uh, didn't have the problem that Paul described in the first two chapters. In fact, let me just give you a little snapshot of what was said about him in some of the interpretive writings of the Old Testament. Uh, It was said that we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given for its written because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Somehow the, the the time had passed to such a degree that they assumed that Abraham instinctively knew the law of God and he did the law of God. Okay, So that was some of the Jewish perspective on it. In the book of Jubilees, it was said, for Abraham was perfect in all his deeds before the Lord. That seriously jeopardizes everything Paul's been saying, right? And so on and on it goes, that there's a perspective on Abraham that if it were true, even a little bit, every bit of what we're studying crumbles, understood? Even if there was only one man who could somehow please God, obey the commandment, instinctively know the law and do it, well then there is no gospel, there is no Jesus. The sin problem isn't that great and you need to find your own solution, you see? That's why Paul brings it up. And so here in chapter four is, is sort of like an Old Testament illustration of the point that Paul has been making that we can't deal with our problem. It's greater than our ability to deal with, and the gospel superabounds in that. So I want us to dig into it. Chapter 4, we're going to deal with three verses. We're going to move around a little bit. We're going to go to the Old Testament and Genesis and back into Galatians. So I want you to hang in there. Um, if you, again, if you don't have a Bible, we'll put it up on the screen for you. But let's look at the first four verses of chapter 4 and see what Paul says in response to the potential argument that Abraham was different than everyone else. Here's what he says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, stop for a second. If you wanna make a note in your Bible, anytime you see flesh in the New Testament, it's referring to activity apart from God's influence. So it's really important to understand what paul the question that Paul just asked or the, the, what he has just kind of informed us with is that somehow uh, if Abraham has the ability apart from the influence of God to do righteous deeds, good works, then he's the exception to the rule. So just understand what flesh means there. He says in verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he presents this question. Could Abraham do anything in his flesh? to such a degree that God would be pleased with it. He answers it by saying no, and he gives us the answer to how Abraham was justified. It's in verse 3. It's an Old Testament quote um, from Genesis chapter 15. It is the quote that Abraham got a counted righteousness. Now, here's the point that you've got to understand. As far as the doctrine of salvation goes, this repeat of Genesis 15 is probably, as some say, the most significant one verse in all the Bible because it's the first introduction of righteousness, And it's the first introduction of faith and justification we have in the scriptures. Now, we know that Adam had a relationship with God. We know those things. But here it's been articulated that there was a counted righteousness. It appears in Genesis 15. It appears here in Romans uh, chapter 4, the beginning, and in verse 9. It appears in Galatians chapter 3. It appears in James chapter 2. Over and over again, Paul uses this one phrase that God mentions in Genesis chapter 15 to settle the argument when it comes to works and performance and righteousness and how it's, how it's found for, for us as sinners. So um, if Paul is going to bring up Abraham as exhibit A for proof that we need something we don't have, a righteousness not of our own, then we need to spend some time on Abraham. What did he know? So I'm going to break it down to three particular thoughts we're going to journey through. I'm gonna, we're going to talk about Abraham's righteousness how did that happen? We're going to talk about Abraham's faith. Was there something special about what he believed? And we're going to talk about his belief. What, what did he know? Okay? So those are the pieces. So when we get all done, we're going to really understand Paul's illustration of Abraham. And then we're going to be able to see clearly, was Abraham the exception to the rule? Or was Abraham just like us? Just like every human being who's ever lived on the planet? Did he have the same need? Did God provide the same solution? Okay, so that's, that's where we're going. Uh, let, let's look at Abraham's righteousness, first of all. And, and I want to deal with it in the form of a question. And the question is, how was Abraham saved? How was this, this counted righteousness? How was Abraham saved? How did that happen? And I'm going to talk about it in, a, in, in a two forms, in a positive and a negative. And it's going to sound familiar because when we did in chapter 3, 21 through 26, it's what I said to you. Well, here's the negative side of this salvation question. And that is, it's not by performance. It's not by work. So the question that he asks in in verse 1, what shall we say about Abraham, our forefather? Was there some work of the flesh that he could do? And his answer is in verse 2, not before God. There might be ways to impress each other. There might be ways to work hard enough to somehow be the person in this room who's better than all other persons, but not before God. Because as we've learned in the scriptures that we all fall short. In fact, Isaiah tells us, let's compare your best works to God's standard. And what happens there? Filthy rags, right? I mean, it's far, it's far more dark than we would care to believe. And so, um, Paul answers the question right away in verse 2 that if you're really asking, is there anything Abraham can do apart from the influence of God? No, the answer is absolutely not, not before God. Now, here's here's what I want us to consider for a second. You're smart, people. I I watched you agree to that statement. (laughs) And yet, there's always places and times where you forget or deny that to be true. So, um, it is uh, Paul's audience, true to him and true to them, and I think it's true to us many times in our life where we think, wait a minute, is it really that absolute? People would prefer to operate with God based on a standard of activities. So, so this is how it happens to us. If you're, and I'm gonna stereotype you, if you're church-going, Bible-thumping, gospel-believing, whatever that is, okay, you can stereotype that person. You, your life, your happiness, your joy, your connection to God, your security and worth always ebbs and flows based on what you do. Let me prove my point. So um, you have a particular inclination towards sin. I know that because I do and everybody I've ever met does. Every person in here has this bent towards evil. I had an illustration of it, I think, yesterday. There's, a, there's been some comments about what do we do with security on campus? You know, uh, it's weird as that is, you're in a church and you have to worry about somebody bringing a gun or, or attacking or whatever. And there was this thing in my head. I confess, I'd kind of like that. I, I'm not trying to be gory, but I, I, I could throw down. I mean, that's in me. I'm a fighter. So, so if someone charged the platform, I even fantasized oh, I could do this and knock him out with that. And like I'm twisted, twisted. It'd be good to break somebody's bones on the platform as an illustration to the church. Everyone has their inclinations. Mine might be anger. I might be too intense for my own good. And it leads to all other, just apply intensity to every other category of life. Yours might be what? Insecurity, fear, control, stubborn. Like what, what what are you known for? And here's what I know about our hearts. I can tell you about the freedom that Christ provides apart from work. There's nothing you can do. And you can sit in the service and amen it and sing it in a song. And suddenly, when you're getting down the road of peace and you have victory over that particular bent of evil for a day, for a week, or whatever you've kind of applied yourself to, you suddenly feel so much better, don't you? Like you kind of rise up and bow out and kind of go, wow, I'm really getting this. This is really good. And I'm gonna suggest to you that that attitude is counter gospel. Now, I'm glad you're doing well. I'm glad you don't fail as much as you used to fail or you had a good week. I'm glad you had a good day. But you're no more holy on that good day, no more righteous on that good day than you were on your worst day when you were running from Jesus if you're covered in the blood of Christ. Do you understand? And that little twisted thought is in every person. And so there's some perspectives, like if you're a Hebrew looking at Father Abraham, like they said, well, God... I know he might have issues, but he did stuff nobody else could do. Or maybe, maybe they're willing to concede the whole idea of works, but maybe they thought there was a kernel, just some small, little, bitty kernel of faith. And God was looking for something he could accept, and he saw that in the, down in the recesses of Abraham's heart, and he says, nah, I can use that. Right? In fact, I've heard preachers preach things like that, which is counter to the gospel. So um, there is a reason why that's, that twisted perspective is in us is because we are conditioned performance junkies. We live in a culture that says always, what did you do for me lately? And we are, we are measured by others and standards and jobs and things based on what we've done. What deal did you close? What grades did you get? What money do you earn? What do, you, what do you know? What job did you complete? And so the pressure is always on to produce because when we produce, others like us more and they pay us more and they talk about us more. And so because of that environment, we are conditioned to dance. Do you understand? Even spiritually, it's a twisted perspective. And so we, uh, we know, and I'm going to tell you this, it, I hope it breaks your heart in an appropriate way, there isn't anything you can bring God even if it's good stuff, and here's why. Because God is not confused by the external, he looks at the heart, and he measures motives in ways that I hate. You know, I've heard, uh, believe it or not, pastors are sick people. And pastors can get up in a pulpit and say, thus says the word of the Lord. And in the back of their head going, I hope they like me. I hope they like me, isn't that jacked up? That's twisted, right? And, and the, the reality of the gospel message is that God will not tolerate, will not accept a counterfeit offering. And so, so you can have it wired on the outside as far as I can tell. But God looks at your heart and he knows that inside your heart are things like greed and lust and, and control and anger and insecurity and power plays and shady deals. He knows that's in you whether people know it or not. He does. He doesn't grade on a curve, and so you can't fool God. You can't impress God. Isn't that what Paul said when he's kind of emphasizing this point of apart from works in in Ephesians chapter 2? For by grace you've been saved, through faith, and that not of yourself, not by works, so that no man can boast. God's not going to share his glory with another, and so he does sift us well. Now, that's the negative side. Can't bring works, right? How was Abraham made righteous? Not by works. Look look at the positive side. It is by faith. Uh, That's verse 3 of chapter 4. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 15 because uh, I just think it's responsible. Some of you might not know the story of Abraham or the story of when God kind of did this in his life, so I think it's worth our time to, to explore it a little bit, but before I read it, as you kind of turn to it, again, Genesis chapter 15. Let's get caught up to speed a little bit on the context here. Uh, we discover, we meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The very first words out of God's mouth was, Abraham, I want you to go to a place I've got for you, okay? Uh, and he's make, he makes this promise of, of uh, two particular things. I'm going to make you a great number of people. You're going to have great descendants, and you're going to have a place to be. Okay, land and descendants is the promise God made in in chapter 12. Now, you see lots of things about Abraham, what he's doing before we get to chapter 15. But by the time we get to chapter 15, um, God has repeated that promise to give him descendants and a place three times And and just a side note, in chapter 14, a wonderful little story, and I think it it proves a little bit more of of Paul's point. Chapter 14 is a story, random story, about Lot being captured by four kings from the east and Abraham gathering 300 of his his servants to go after him, and he defeats four national armies with 300 men at night. He captures all the plunder and comes back. And so I, I just thought when I was reading that, isn't that amazing? Like if there was a human way to merit favor, That's it. Fair? Success, right? Did he not have success? Did he not beat four kings? Yes, he did. Did he not um, do a good thing, do good deeds? He rescued Lot and his family. Did he not have more? He came back with all the plunder. If there's human ways to measure whether I'm gaining, Abraham could have looked at that. But right on the cusp of that wonderful, what I would call pinnacle moment for a 75-year-old dude to fight four nations and win, Right after that, you'd think he'd be all jacked up and high. He hits the skids. Right at the beginning of chapter 15, God says to him, hey, I'm going to do you a favor. And Abraham goes, no, you won't. Oh, what can you give me? I have no descendants. And that's kind of how we experience Abraham in 15 after one of his biggest moments. And I think it's interesting at least to stop to say it's like us too. There isn't any version of success or wins or whatever apart from Jesus that will ever comfort the human heart, ever. So it's important to see that that's how Abraham uh, finds himself. And so let's, let's read these verses, and let's see what we have to say. We're going to read just the first six verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The key word to understanding what happened for Abraham is the word counted. Your text might say credited. It is a, in the Greek, it's a bookkeeping term. It's simply talking about ledgers, you know. I I don't keep the books at my house, my wife does, but I did at one time take the Time to copiously write down every time I got a check and every time I wrote a check, right? So I'd keep record of where I stand, okay? Well, that's the, that's the terminology that, that God is using here of how Abraham discovers righteousness. There is a ledger uh, adjustment for him. Now, l- let me d- just illustrate it this way. For instance, if you were to have a $1,000 and you go into a teller and say, can you put this $1,000 in my account? Very simple. She would put it to your account and then your account would actually have and show thousand dollars. Conversely, if you were to write a check for a thousand and it gets all cleared and that thousand leaves your account. But my point is this: it's real. Some people think of God and how he deals with our sin specifically about this counting or crediting as if God is pretending. Like every one of us, according to the first two chapters of Romans, find our ledger of sin full. Full. I mean, we are in debt up to our eyeballs and then some to God. And some people look at what God says about counting or crediting like God just kind of, I don't see it. I don't see it. The, kind of that kind of silly pretending part that he can just pretend like it's not there and sort of pretend and look at it as if the righteousness is there. Well, that's not true. God has to deal with the debt. It's a legitimate debt. The Bible says that if you sin, you will die. The debt is beyond your ability to pay, and so God has to deal with that debt. And we know what Jesus did, right? Jesus is the one who paid that debt. God somehow was able to transfer from my ledger to the ledger of Christ my sin and my worth of death, and God pours out all of his righteous, holy, Godlike wrath on Jesus, and the debt is paid. Well, that's one half of this thing, but my ledger is still blank. I need righteousness, of which God said you must have. And so God was able to transfer from Jesus' ledger his righteousness, and so my blank slate now is holy. Now, I need you to get this, people. Sometimes I I watch you kind of hear this, and you kind of go, and that's cute, that's nice. I don't mean it that way. It's mind-blowing that you're holy. How many of you feel holy? (laughs) Don't raise your hand. You're holy. As far as God's concerned, you're as pure and as white as if you've never sinned forever. Amen? It's an unbelievable truth. The only way Abraham was made righteous is somehow the debt had to be paid for and somehow he had to get the resource of righteousness. We know because we have the gospels. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who provided that and it was a real transfer, a real transaction and God can't overlook it he can't and won't um, pretend that it's not there or pretend that it is there he has a holy standard it has to be met righteousness has to come and that's exactly what God did for Abraham now I want to take a second because I just think it it is so powerful Uh, we're not going to read it but verses seven through the end of uh, chapter 15 I'm calling it the God contract and I've mentioned it to you, if you've been around Redemption Gilbert for years, I've said it a couple times in sermons. So uh, we are in context, so I'm going to bring it up again. As soon as God deals with Abraham, and Abraham believed God it was counted as righteousness, something unbelievable happens. Uh, God tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to go and t- get some animals, okay? And and he suggests to him, get some pigeons and some doves and Some goats and some heifers, and I want you to cut the animals in two and separate the pieces. Now, what you need to know culturally speaking, what's happening here is a contract is being written. In that culture, when you were to make an agreement with someone to buy a piece of land or do some kind of services, you would take an animal and spill its blood, separate the pieces, and the two parties making the deal would join arms and walk between the pieces. And it was an outward sign saying to everyone, listen, that's what will happen to us if we don't keep our end of the deal. Get it? So you can be Abraham, in Abraham's moccasins at this point going, okay, I see what God's doing. He's preparing a contract. And I know how this works. We'll separate the pieces. Somehow God and I will join arms and forces and we'll pass between the pieces. And it'll be ratified. And so this counted righteousness will be mine based on this deal. And so I, I'm assuming that's sort of in Abraham's mind, although he does all the work, separates the pieces, and God knocks him out. He's out cold. He's off to the side, sleeping, and the Bible tells us here in Genesis 15 that God takes up the form of a pillar of smoke and fire and passes between the pieces himself. Now, you're a thinking person, so you get this. God has just signed the covenant of counted righteousness on his own character. So, church, let me ask you a question now. If God made a promise by who he is, that he would make people righteous who couldn't make themselves righteous, where are you in that story? You're sleeping. You're Abraham off to the side. You're out cold. And so there's some amazing terms of this contract. God shows his incredible love for sinners like us who won't and can't fix our problem. He's committed to the promise to such a degree, he says, let me not exist if I don't make them righteous. And he says, I've removed you from the equation. All that fear, all the anxiousness, all the performance, all the desire to participate in your own salvation, I've taken you out of the equation. I did it for you. Merry Christmas, right? Have a great day. And, and that's the power of Genesis chapter 15, a wonderful story of granted, credited, ledger to ledger righteousness, and God securing it with who he is. Now, there's a couple other things I want to say about Abraham. We've taken a look at his righteousness. Where does he get it? One, is it's not by works, but it is by accredited righteousness. But I want to look at his faith, and I I just want to touch on this um, because I I want to confront something that I think I see in my own heart and in other people's hearts. Um, When we talk about Abraham's faith, something changes in us. I mean, it's no different than picking any kind of Old Testament saint who has a wonderful story written about him in the Bible. He suddenly starts to become bigger and bigger, and we get farther and farther away from relatability, and somehow we look at Abraham and go, man, he was a stud. I mean, let's, let's be honest. I mean, maybe he needed credited righteousness, but he was, he was a stud. He was different than me. He had more significant faith or more significant courage. Um, He was a special man with a special ability, and I'm going to tell you I don't buy it. Uh, um, We look at his life, and we compare ourselves to him, and we say, you know what? I not only fall short of God's standard, I fall short of Abraham's. I'm a loser. And I'm going to tell you that's not true. And there's a reason for that is because there's a sneaky little thing that happens even to us after we just get done affirming grace alone is to think, but, but. There are some people that are pretty sharp. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, just as an illustration, God introduces himself to Abram and says, listen, Abram, I want you to leave your family, your kindred, your land, and I want you to go to Canaan. What does Abraham do? He heads towards Canaan, but he takes Lot and his family with him. Half-hearted obedience. God said, leave your kindred. Abraham somehow had an issue with going alone, so he takes, he takes Lot with him. Abraham gets to that promised place, and there's a famine in the land. And Abraham says, I've got to fix this. In spite of what God has done and promised, I've got to fix this. So he heads off to Egypt, right? I'm going to suggest to you that's half-hearted obedience. When he gets to Egypt, he looks at his wife, and she's smoking hot. And he says, you know, if we get there, they're going to take her and kill me to get her. So let you and I, Sarah, let's lie. Let's tell them that you're my sister, and then I'll live. And so that's what he does. Pharaoh takes Sarah. I'm going to suggest to you that's not the will of God. <laughs> and he lied. When, uh, when God's promise of an heir coming from his, his own body takes too long, Sarah invents and concocts a plan. Hey, you know what? Take my maidservant. You go sleep with her. You have a kid with her, and we'll get this thing done. Apart from God's plan, <laughs> I'm going to suggest to you that's half-hearted obedience. When uh, Abram hears from God that God now at ninety or you know Sarah at ninety whatever years old is going to have a child, this this promise is going to happen. Abraham laughs out loud in God's face. I'm going to suggest to you, half-hearted. Well, you get to chapter twenty of Genesis. Abraham does it again. He's afraid of Abimelech, and so he tells Abimelech, "He's my, she's my sister." I'm going to show you one word that tells you Abraham's problem. Look at 15, verse 1. Chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 1. You can tell me what it is. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. What's the next word? Fear, Fear not. I know what Abraham's problem is. He's chicken, just like I am. He's chicken about everything. God's talking to him, promising things, doing all sorts of stuff, and yet he's afraid. He's afraid. He's afraid God's not going to deliver. He's afraid that he's going to be overtaken. He's afraid somebody's going to kill him. He's afraid. And here's, here's why I bring this up, okay, church? Listen very carefully. God saves losers. He saves people who are afraid. He saves people who are perpetually struggling, who can't seem to get it right. He saves people who are addicted and doubting and sinners and insecure. He sa- that's, in fact, that's the only people he saves. Broken people. And if you're looking at Abraham, whatever, or any other illustration and saying, yeah, but it's not me. You're dead wrong. You should revel in the fact that what God loves is the people who can't. Who can't. Not just once, but can never perform to such a degree that God is happy. God gives righteousness from Christ to us in our inability. And look at Abraham. He's a great example of how God introduces righteousness by faith alone. But he's a great illustration of understanding it's not a perfect faith that he saves. Do you understand? You ever wrestle with doubt? You don't have to answer. I already know. You ever wrestle with doubt? You ever get mad at God? You ever ever go directly, not just kind of sort of oops, mistake, bump to the left. You ever go directly away from the will of God? Go to a place of sin, camp there, put up a tent, and hang a mailbox. You ever do that? (laughs) Every Christian does that. And my point is this, is that if you look at Abraham and somehow now declassify him as normal, and you as abnormal, you're always going to wrestle with this wonderful, imputed righteousness of Christ as yours by faith. It is. And God sees all the imperfections. He sees all the doubts. He sees all the struggle. He knows we're knuckleheads. He saves us anyway, amen? Let's move on. We have a few minutes left. Let's deal with what Abraham believed. I want you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. I think you're going to be surprised at what Abraham believed. um, And this will be good because it's the same thing we believe. There's no inconsistencies with God. People are saved, always have been the same way. And so someone asked me a question this week. How are people in the Old Testament saved? You're about to see how it's possible. They didn't know of Jesus, the cross hadn't happened yet, so how does this stuff happen? Um, Galatians chapter 3, Paul, let me just give you context, the Apostle Paul, this whole letter is written to a controversy in the church. It's about the same subject matter of righteousness apart from works, and some false teachers have infiltrated the church and said things like, yeah, Jesus is cool and everything, but you need to be circumcised. Yeah, Jesus is cool and everything, but you got to keep the law. So law, circumcision, Jesus equals a package of salvation. And Paul writes what I call the most aggressive letter he's ever written. In fact, he starts out chapter 1 saying, let them be damned to hell. And that's the phrase of anathema that he, he mentions in chapter 1. Let them be damned to hell if they mess with this message of grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, okay? So that's the, that's the theme behind Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 3, he reveals to us, The illustration of Abraham, just like he has in in chapter 4 of Romans. And so I want us to work through this together and see what he says about what he believes. Now, I'm going to suggest to you the first thing that he says is that he believed the gospel, the good news. Now, I want you to read with me verses 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed is it in vain? You can see Paul's theme. It's the same thing he's been dealing with in Romans. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see that repeated phrase there. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, watch this. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed among Abraham, the man of faith. What did Abraham believe? The good news. Abraham believed, trusted in um, Christ Christ and God for his spiritual need, that God somehow would bring the spiritual blessing and spiritual solution to people's lives through his life and through his descendants. I think the only reason why Abraham would leave Ur and go to Canaan was because he had a perspective on God doing some huge blessing for mankind called the good news of the gospel. In fact, Hebrews 11 gives us a little snapshot. Watch what Abraham knew. The writer of Hebrews said that Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Abraham, I don't know how much detail he knew, but he knew this, there is a city, there's a place, there's a home, there's a future where God is the king. And it's not all this mess and it's not all this sin. He believed the good news that God God was the, the author of that. And there's a second thing he knew, verses 10 through 14, he believed in the redemption. Paul says this in verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a Curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith; rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now listen, verse thirteen: Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Abraham understood redemption. Redemption in the in Paul's day was a word used to describe how to buy a slave his freedom. There was a price to be paid. You had to meet the price and then you could go free. The illustration is clear that there was a there was a sin problem that needed a Christ solution. So Did he know about Jesus by name? Probably not. Did he know about the virgin birth? Probably not. Did he know about his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension? Probably not. But he knew this. He knew that God was going to do a great work for people that that couldn't do it for themselves. And he knew it was about redemption. It was about buying us out of a problem. He looked forward to the Redeemer. So we have the Gospels, kind of the center point of human history. We... Look back to Jesus in detail of how God redeemed sinners. Apart from Noah. they look forward to a Jesus they don't know His name, but they know there's a Redeemer. In fact, listen to what listen to what Jesus said. He said Abraham rejoiced at seeing the thought of His day. Abraham looked forward to the day of Christ and was blessed by it. So he believed the gospel. He believed in redemption. Here's the last thing, and it's verses 15 and 16. He believed in Jesus. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, listen very carefully. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. When God promised Abraham a future and a descendant, we always read, oh, you're going to, we're talking about the number of stars, like the number of kids. That wasn't what Abraham heard, and that's not what God was selling. God was talking about the singular offspring, the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus. Jesus, the Savior. He was the promised one, the one descended of Abraham that could deal with Abraham's problem. It's a mind blower, right? So if you're, if you're an audience of Paul sitting there looking for the exception, the loophole in grace alone, apart from works, and you throw Abraham up, Abraham goes, great, huge softball, boom, easy. Abraham's a great depiction of faith alone in Christ alone. And so here's what we've got, church, and I'm going to finish with this. This amazing news that I have a hard time even keeping my brain around, that righteousness is available to sinners, has always come through faith in Christ for Old Testament saints, and for everybody in this room. There are a lot of portrayed options in our world, but all they are is counterfeits. They all lead to the same place, judgment of God. And I'm going to suggest to you that when Jesus preached his first sermon in Matthew chapter 5, he introduces us to the reaction to this good news, and he calls it blessed, which is the interpretation of happy. Okay, so here's what I'm trying to say to you the joy in your life, the happiness in your demeanor based on what I just told you should overflow. It should go crazy, and it should morph or crush all the other obstacles. So if you spend most of your time worrying about your problems or your inabilities or the struggles or this knucklehead or that knucklehead or you don't have enough this or you don't have enough that or this wrong person in your life, if you're overwhelmed with those stories, I'm suggesting to you you haven't spent enough time with the gospel because the gospel makes us a happy people, Right? I think it does. Words like justified. God doesn't see me as a sinner. Ever. Good news? I think so. Rescued from the wrath to come. All all of the eternal, holy, monstrous-sized wrath, a holy God can rise up against sin isn't mine anymore. It's poured out on Jesus, and God is satisfied. Happy? Yeah, I think you should be. And you're free. Free. Whatever that word means. Free from performance, free from good days, bad days, free from insecurity, uh, free to love Jesus for the first time in your life, counted as righteous. I love that story. I just am blown away by that story. We are about to celebrate communion, and, and Neil's going to come and kind of set it up, but can I just tell you, I don't know if he needs to say one word, to be honest with you. Righteousness of Christ is ours by faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this truth, for your gospel. We love you this morning. We pray this in Christ's name.